Hello and welcome to Going Viral, the podcast all about infectious diseases. I'm Mark Honigsbaum, a medical historian and science writer. If you've been standing on Westminster Bridge on the morning of Monday, March the 29th, you would have witnessed an extraordinary scene on the embankment below. That was the day, you may recall, when the government allowed groups of six people from different households to meet outside for the first time in three months. Looking in the direction of Lambeth Pier, you would have seen five such groups, each spaced two metres apart, as per the government regulations, drawing red hearts on the Portland stone wall. Wearing high-vis jackets emblazoned with the words National Covid Memorial Wall, they appeared to be an official delegation. In fact, they were members of Covid-19 Bereaved Families for Justice, and they were engaged in an audacious, unauthorised work of guerrilla art. Within days, they had drawn 150,000 hearts, one for every British victim of the coronavirus. And within weeks, the wall had become a pilgrimage site for bereaved families from all over the UK. Although the wall has yet to be officially sanctioned, Lambeth Council, who are responsible for the upkeep of Albert Embankment, have said they are happy for the hearts to remain. And the wall has drawn wide praise from a range of faith leaders, including Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury. On a rainy Saturday morning in May, I visited the wall with my colleague Hannah Maudsley. The wall, you can see, is normally a sort of slightly mossy grey colour. And actually, when you look along it, the the hearts almost all join up and it it turns the whole wall pink as you look along the length of the river. It's, It's amazing. Regular listeners to this podcast will recall Hannah from Series 1 when together we investigated why there were so few memorials to the 1918 Spanish influenza pandemic. Even though survivors of the Spanish flu said it was an experience that they would, quote, never forget, the pandemic did not register in collective memory, a process that has been termed social forgetting. By contrast, the National COVID Memorial Wall struck us as an example of social remembering, an effort by the bereaved to remind politicians of their losses and of their many unanswered questions about the pandemic. I think what's extraordinary is this location, the juxtaposition. We've got St Thomas's Hospital towering over the wall. And if you look carefully, you'll see as you go along a number of inscriptions dedicated to NHS frontline workers who worked on critical care wards, some of them who died from their colleagues paying tribute. So it's really a wall for everyone. It's international as well. There are, there are people from Italy who've left their inscriptions here. It reminds you that London is this diverse international city. So I, re- I just think it's brilliant. I mean, if it was planned, you know, it, it would have all been curated and there would have been endless committees and some artists would have had to got involved. This is so much more organic and real to me. <laughs> I think that's a really interesting point about the, the diversity of names that are on the wall and something that's always really struck me about disease commemoration is the lack of material culture and the lack of place that is so often causes almost a problem in how you remember this this scale of death so the diversity of the names on this wall you've got people from uh, you know it looks like China looks like France looks like lots of different countries that have died during this pandemic and they are all being brought together in this one location where their death can actually signify something it can mean something those dead people can have a, a voice they can be given a voice and they can come together and have a power 
and, and you see this demonstrated here on the wall with all of these hearts, the scale of it is astounding. That has power, and the fact that it's facing the Houses of Parliament, the Palace of Westminster, I think really sends a powerful message. Here's another, look, somebody else has done all the lines connecting the hearts. This says uh, Isle of Sheppey, just above, and all the members of the family have written their names in hearts and then there are like blue vein-like connections from each heart to the central one which is you know either their father or granddad who has died. Thinking back to the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 uh, it really reminds me of a site in Sydney the North Head quarantine station and there since the 1830s when people were quarantined there on ships before they were allowed into the city of Sydney they were kept there to see if they were uh, diseased or not and while they were there they would inscribe their names different uh, motifs on the actual rock of the outcrop there in Sydney Harbour and it's it's again a very physical act of memory of, of place setting of, of, of claiming that spot as an indication of, of I was here this is, this is where something happened and it really recalls that feeling for me all of these names these people weren't physically here but their loved ones were and, and the act of inscribing their names here has imbued these hearts with that, that loss, that emotion, that remembrance and in some cases that, that political will where they're desperate for their death to mean something and they're desperate for their loved one's death to actually generate some change. And in the same way as the Covid memorial wall, the Sydney site was very organic, it wasn't official, it was something that, that was very personal to the people that were there. And again, this is not an organised thing. This has been allowed to happen by the council, but I don't think they could have stopped it. It's, this has got such a momentum behind it, such a power to the people kind of thing, really. And I think it's just going to get bigger and bigger, to be honest. So how did the wall come into being? And how did COVID-19 bereave Families for Justice managed to paint all those hearts on Albert Embankment without anyone noticing. To find out, we spoke to the founders of the group, Joe Goodman and Matt Fowler, and to the group's campaign manager, Nathan Oswin. Here's Joe Goodman. All of us, I think, felt from very early days that it felt like our loved ones were often reduced to numbers on a graph in a press conference. Her father, Stuart, died of COVID on the 2nd of April 2020. Age 72, he was one of the first victims of the pandemic. In the early days, there were conversations about, could we have pairs of shoes? Could we, you know, what can you do to kind of make those numbers come to life is kind of a weird phrase when you're talking about death, really. It's kind of a, but something that makes you realise that they're not numbers, they're people and their lives that have been lost. You know, people in whatever phase of life they were just stopped short. I can't remember exactly when the 100,000 figure was reached but I think there was a lot kind of in the lead up to that there was some use of, of visuals like football stadiums and I think on Newsnight um, there was the use of a I think it was a packed Wembley stadium to try to visualise what that looked like and I think those things were really powerful but at the same time the visual you got was of a crowd and a kind of fairly anonymous mass I suppose so you got a sense of the scale but not I think the idea was to bring home the kind of individualism and the scale at the same time. And I think, yeah, we talked about different kinds of symbols and whether you'd go for kind of hand prints or things like that. But I think hearts kind of won the day because, A, they recognised the kind of 
love that is held for those people um and b i think on a practical level they're quite easy to draw <laughs> i think if we'd gone for hands it would have got a bit trickier to do and the quality control might have been a bit trickier so i think that that was the kind of thought and then in terms of the location it was we wanted it to be somewhere that was kind of striking you know it, it feels often that these deaths are being brushed under the carpet because they're an inconvenient truth and i think we feel that the country and the leadership of the country have to kind of look the the nation's loss in in the face really and i think when we kind of struck upon the idea of that location it it felt perfect and i think actually the fact that it's across the river and you've got that separation it means that it is its own space and you're not you're not really that aware unless you look over the river that you are opposite parliament and you do feel that the wall itself is a kind of almost it, it's become a bit of a sacred space it's not there purely to be in that location it's there to be the memorial that it is but then it, it's also positioned in such a way that you know you do know that people can see it from the other side of the river on the plaque the actual official embossed plaque did you already have that ready on the monday we did yeah and i have to say when we were discussing calling it the national covid memorial wall it felt pretty audacious and it was kind of uh yeah it felt like um how how can we claim such a title but i think now it does feel apt because it captures the grief of a nation and it does have hearts dedicated to people from every corner of the UK and actually I think it means in some ways it means more to people who are so far away knowing that their loved ones are remembered in in that location. So how did COVID-19 bereaved families come to select the South Bank and how did they realise their vision? Here's Nathan Oswin, the group's campaign manager. It wasn't waiting for a a civil servant in a very fine suit with a very fine 2B pencil on a very fine bit of paper to sketch a very fine monument. You know, this this was people taking action directly. And in a crude way, you know, I, I, some, some of the people who drew hearts are um, excellent artists. Some people are not. But each heart was hand-painted. You know, th- this wasn't a stencil thing to get it done quickly. E- each heart is individual. And I think that element captured the imagination as well. We hit upon the idea of red hearts on a wall very, very early. In fact, I think that was that was one of the, the very first, in fact, it was the first idea that was spoken about. The site itself and, and how that came about, there's kind of three key symbolic factors to it and then one very, very practical factor. So the symbolic ones, it's very clearly opposite the Houses of Parliament. And there is something symbolically important there about that scale facing that place that had taken decisions and demonstrating the scale of loss, um, you know, in a central place. And there's this bit of, for some, uh, some people have remarked that, you know, oh, Parliament seems so near, but it feels so far because of the Thames separating the wall and the Palace of Westminster. So there was that end to it. The wall itself is, is on next to uh, St. Thomas's Hospital. And where people who had helped create the wall, you know, some of those people had lost their loved ones in St. Thomas's. You know, that was the final place their loved one took a breath. And so there was something deeply powerful and personal about that element to it. And then thirdly, it's very much a community through fair. And people use that part of the South Bank. Joggers are along, run along it every day. 
um, people go down there to take shots of Parliament, you know, looking themselves there. And it's that iconic shot that everybody looks for. And so it is a busy through fair. And COVID has impacted all of us across the country and all of our communities and been at the at the very heart, pardon the pun, of our lives for over a year. And so to have it in this centralised community feel location felt just symbolically really, really powerful. And then the practical thing is, you know, find another wall where you can paint that amount of hearts on it. And it is just a very, very difficult feat to find anything on that scale, you know, particularly in somewhere like central London, where, you know, properties at a premium and walls like that don't come along very often. But that still left the problem of how to paint the hearts on the wall without the authorities noticing. Until March, gatherings of people from different households was forbidden. But on March 29th, the government relaxed the restrictions to allow groups of six people to meet outside for the first time since January. That's when COVID-19 bereaved families swung into action. It was the anniversary of lockdown, um, which I think from memory was the week before the action had, had, had started, yeah, and had said words along the lines of um, people should feel free to commemorate and remember as they see fit. And to us, that was just the the moment where it absolutely became, well, we absolutely must do this. You know, this was an action that's been chosen by those who have lost loved ones. The the job of campaigners and organisers is to not to take decisions. You know, my job is to make recommendations to the families and say, well, this feels achievable. This doesn't. This, this, you know, is how we could make this happen or otherwise. And so they'd chosen it. You know, this was a memorialization chosen by those who had lost loved ones. This wasn't somebody enforcing what their remembrance should be or should look like. And the second the prime minister said that, it became, well, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a green light, you know, particularly but in that sense. But it was certainly a, a, the final push to say, yeah, this absolutely feels the right thing to do. Okay, so let's talk about the day itself. Give me a flavour and insight into the planning when you assembled, what it was all like. So the, the main bit with the planning had been the week before when we were talking about, you know, what does the site look like in effect? How do you show people that this isn't, uh, you know, a gang of people with spray cans tagging a wall? in effect um the, the wall itself has attracted graffiti over many many years it's it's type of walkthrough that type of through fair um but normally you know tags with spray cans and so we were keen to make sure that people didn't think that's what this was about because of course it wasn't you know this is an attempt to have a, a, a memorialization that's led by those who have lost loved ones um, and so we would get into the so within the planning chain we'd got elements around there were high visits that had the national covid memorial wall branding on the back a frames so billboards that could be set between each section with the national covid memorial wall on it all in the same font all in the the same branding uh, masks with a red heart on them so that that was everything looked like it should it was respectful it was in keeping with what we were doing um, so that was the way we, we had it was that people who were working on the wall who had lost a loved one uh, could have one of the masks and then the organising team, uh, the organising team mainly so that other people could help identify us, you know, in, in those moments when the press were coming down or members of the public wanted to interact, etc. But so that that was an important part of it as well. And of course, you know, the, the symbology of, of COVID is, you know, the mask is probably the kind of symbolic element for a lot of people, isn't it? That has 
become a focus of an, an almost a sign of the changed experience over the last year for everybody. And so there's something within that, I think, as a kind of powerful iconography. Um, but equally, we would, you know, we made sure that we had an area with signage and, and candles that were protected by glass that flowers could be left at so that people understood that it was a respectful commemoration site as well. You had Hivers jackets with um, the branding National COVID Memorial Wall. You had these A-frames. Just talk me through those again. So an A-frame is effectively a billboard. Um, how we'd use those is one would be at one part of the section. You would then have your team of six working on that section of the wall, all socially distanced, two metres apart. And then your a next A-frame would be at the start of the next section. So they were effectively used as well as a marker point between the teams. But then equally, when members of the public walked past, you could see what was happening. You know, here's this signage that says, this is the National COVID Memorial Wall. And you see people working on the wall with these pens painting hearts. And it starts to trigger, and, and oh, right, okay, this is what's happening. Um, and so they played an important role in that and giving it, you know, symbol of legitimacy, really, aren't they, signs? You know, we kind of associate them with authority or an allowance of something being OK or prohibited. And the signage kind of gives that impression of this is fine. People are just doing this. OK, that's interesting. I can move on with my day. So there's, you know, that kind of psychological push factor within them as well but mainly for us it was a logistical element between the, the keeping the sides separated how many bereaved were there how many groups of six spaced two meters apart so we'd had 30 people on the first day which was and the first day is always the most difficult because of course the nature of the action means you can't go widely publicizing it um, and so that is always the the day with the least involvement um, but yeah, 35, five lots of panels uh, on the first day, plus then, you know, the organising team around it as well. So, but that first moment there, the nervy, you know, this is, you're about to, the, the second that pen touches the wall and you haven't got permission, you are effectively, in a legal sense, even if not in a moralistic sense, you, but you're committing a criminal act. You know, you are effectively placing graffiti and, and the legal status of the wall effectively at the minute is it's just graffiti on a wall you know and of course that's something we want to change but in those first moments you don't know how the public are going to react or the local authority are going to react or the hospital are going to react or the police are going to react you know and so those moments are highly charged and you can imagine the kind of emotional interaction for members as they're painting those hearts you know these are people who have already had the most traumatic year of their lives who then go and undertake this action and you know my, my job is to make sure that nobody started to, to write on the wall without knowing the risks and so they know that there's a risk of you know potentially arrest they th who was the first person to take a red pen and begin drawing a heart and this so that would be Matt Fowler, who's the other co-founder of the COVID-19 Bereaved Families for Justice campaign. Uh, so Matt and Joe find, founded the campaign uh, last year. And so, yeah, he he did the first heart um, in tribute to his dad. And so it's it's in the, 
we refer to them as panels, but the kind of fourth, fourth panel along uh, in the top left, um, there's a heart there with an IF in it, which is his daddy. And so, yeah, he was the first one. And that was done at about 8.30, the first heart went up. The bizarre bit, I, I mean, one of the things I remember really vividly from the day is I'd gone up to the Westminster Bridge end to take some phone calls, speak to the press. Well, there's an action down here and to try and liaise with people. My main role while we were at the wall was was press liaison and political engagement, stakeholder management, that kind of stuff. And I remember turning around after a call and seeing the families walk, you know, in kind of groups of six. They'd got the stuff, pens have been given out, instructions have been given, and walking up that length a really kind of incredible moment when you know what's about to start happening. And, and yeah, just, just deeply, deeply touching. I'm, I'm a, a bit of a softy mark with, with something. Um, you know, I, I think there's something, as cheesy as it sounds, just inherently wonderful and almost beautiful about people kind of persevering through adversity and refusing to kind of take no for an answer with, with you know, from, from powers that be or to find ways of expressing themselves against the odds. And, you know, that first day felt so in keeping with that principle that it, it was people who were there to, to express their loss and their hope for a better tomorrow in so many ways as well by taking this action with all the risks that it took, you know, and, and it's that thing, isn't it? The consequences of potentially being arrested at a not just caught, but you could lose your job. And, you know, your job is you're, you're linked to being able to pay your bills and have a roof over your head and everything. But despite all those risks, you know, here are people who are prepared to stand up and put pen to, to brick to leave their, their mark. And, you know, for me, on, on a, and that's probably more of a personal thing about, you know, how I view the world and everything. But for me, there's something just really inherently powerful in that. Here's Matt Fowler, the co-founder of COVID Bereaved Families. Every single heart that has been painted on the wall has been done individually uh, and uniquely. There's no templates, everything is done by hand. And that is to represent how each of the people that were lost was a unique individual and not just a statistic. Matt's father, Ian, was hospitalised with COVID on March the 23rd, 2020, the first day of the national lockdown, dying a few weeks later. He was just 56. People aren't very good at comprehending scale. Even if you could gather 150,000 people together, you couldn't see 150,000 people. It's very important that any sort of representation of that scale is recorded because rather than allow people to be reduced to numbers or a few words on a page, and uh, I second exactly what Joe said earlier, it doesn't matter how many times you, you go through it and try to do it. You can't summarise somebody's life in you know, a few paragraphs. So it's important that what we do is remind people that that sort of scale does exist and that there is a way of visually representing it. Um, I think we've managed to do that with The Wall. The Wall has certainly captured the attention of the world's press, with stories in The Washington Post and The New Yorker and TV reporters vying to record pieces to camera in front of the hearts. London's Mayor Sadiq Khan and the leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer, have also praised the wall. But so far, the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, has been uncharacteristically silent. 
Perhaps his reticence has something to do with the fact that in October, prior to the second national lockdown, he's reported to have told cabinet colleagues, no more effing lockdowns. Let the bodies pile high in their thousands. Although Johnson denies using those words, his remarks were recently confirmed by his former chief advisor, Dominic Cummings, and they've angered members of COVID-19 bereaved families. On Facebook, they posted, our loved ones were not bodies to be piled up in hospital. It just reflects the fact that those lives aren't valued, that they're seen as collateral damage and acceptable collateral damage. And it's very difficult to hear. I mean, obviously, we lost our loved ones much earlier on than these comments are reported to have taken place. But I think particularly having fought as hard as we've fought to try to prevent further loss of life and to know that those kinds of comments could have been made so far into the pandemic. Yeah, it just it makes you feel as though those lives haven't been given the, the value that they should intrinsically have, regardless of who they are. I have no love for the Prime Minister. However, throughout all of this, I have put aside my personal feelings to try and cooperate and work towards the benefit for everybody, uh, not for me. Um, and I would hope that he could show the dignity and decorum to do the same. If the Prime Minister was to visit the wall, I would ask him to think carefully about what it represents and to commit to doing whatever he could to prevent more hearts being added to it. I think that is really the only thing that we can ask. And I think that it should be the most important thing on his mind as well as ours. Uh, our ambition uh, around the, the campaign hasn't been to cast aspersions or look for any sort of recompense or compensation or whatever. What's important for us is to try and save as many lives going forward as we can, not just now in this pandemic, in any sort of future pandemic as well. So what's important for us is that we know that people are still being lost now. Uh, people are still catching the virus. People are still dying from it. Uh, and those people are you know, in our hearts and in our minds. We think about that all the time. And I think that's probably one of the things that's very important about the memorial is that we will continue memorialising those people uh, as, they, uh, uh, as they sadly add to the, to the uh, death toll. There weren't many people around on the day we visited. It was too wet. But halfway along the embankment, I spotted a lone woman inscribing a message on the wall. Jane Taylor Broadbent had travelled down from Hull that morning to honour her partner Julie, who died of COVID on May the 8th, just four days before her 50th birthday. Julie had been admitted to hospital on May the 4th with a burst ulcer, but had to be put on oxygen when she developed breathing problems. She, she was on the fast-flowing oxygen treatment she was too pearly to go on a ventilator went into intensive care she couldn't speak but she could hear me and um, I sat with her and said our goodbyes Like other members of the campaign group Jane has unanswered questions about Julie's death and would like to see a public inquiry There is a lot of questions I I've got so many why questions to ask our Prime Minister. And when Matt and Joe set up the group, which I joined 
a few weeks after yeah. calling for this it, it wasn't it wasn't political it wasn't having a dig at the the government it was to stop all these people down there joining yeah um, Julie yeah I know the at the time of Julie's death I knew, knew I couldn't there was nothing that could bring her back but an inquiry would stop all these. Yeah. My world just stopped. Time stood still. To me, it's still that day. And I, I relive um, Julie passing and how she passed, how painful she, she passed every single day. One of the cleverest things about the wall is that it already feels permanent. Halfway along... There's a large wooden board inscribed with the words National Covid Memorial Wall. From a distance, it looks like an official plaque. Mark, it puts me in mind much more of the the more usual forms of memorialisation that we come across you know, on public memorials, on statues, and even at the war graves commission sites uh, in France, for example. Yeah. I think it's absolutely brilliant because, you know, this was guerrilla memorialisation, but by doing that, it's sort of saying, no, you know, this is, has the veneer of authenticity. But of course, it's, there can be nothing more authentic than uh, real people coming and putting things that, you know, haven't been curated or decided by a committee, right? You can just imagine if a committee of the great and good had got involved and, you know, they'd involved all sorts of important artists. Uh, It would have all been sanitised and controlled. But, I mean, what's marvellous about it is they've said, no, this is our National COVID Memorial. And I I don't think anything will replace it as the National COVID Memorial. I think there will be other memorials, presumably. Um, But I think for everyone, this now is the National COVID Memorial. Yeah, I wonder how many other national memorials have actually been people-generated rather than by the government at the time. Um, It's almost subverted that idea of of a formal official type of memorial it, it, yeah. it means it's far more reflective of, of the uh, well, it, of the it, individuals that have created this right. rather than the government well it's extremely radical and subversive because as I understand there are two types of memorial there's what they call a closed memorial so the cenotaph is a classic example or even the Vietnam War Memorial Washington DC this is open in the sense that it's unfinished it's still evolving and it's free to anyone to come and put their mark on and it Indeed, you know, although most, it's nearly all dedicated people who passed because of COVID, somewhere along I couldn't help notice that somebody's written RAP Prince Philip died during this period, but not of COVID-19. And I think that's kind of interesting that people, somewhere I think I saw a reference to Grenfell, you know, this has become a sort of, a kind of vehicle for all sorts of unresolved, unrequited grief and possibly anger people have about other injustices in this country. The other thing I, I think of immediately when I come here, and you see there's still flowers scattered around, is uh, when Princess Diana died, there was suddenly, for the first time in British, this popular phenomenon of people laying flowers everywhere. And at the time, people said, where did this come from? You know, we're, the, we're British, we're reticent, we, we don't do this, we don't emote like this, and certainly not all over Kensington Gardens. And I think this is kind of like the sort of heart version of that. It's incredible how much emotion is captured in the inscriptions on this wall in front of us. There's one in front of me now. It says, too dearly loved to be forgotten. And I think that's really powerful. But it also 
it uses the symbol of heart to talk about love, but there's so many more emotions on this wall than just, just love, wouldn't you say, Mark? Yeah, I mean, what I find interesting walking along it is you see love, you see expressions of loss, obviously grief, but there is also anger, you know, directed at politicians or authorities. As you walk along and you, you get a sense of the numbers of people who have died and the range of emotions and the power and depth of those, you can't help but feel awe and terrible sadness. It's very, very moving. And particularly when you see... For instance, somewhere like this, there's like one to all the Filipino frontline health workers who lost their lives. Um, you know, the NHS depends on, you know, people from all over the world. You know, those are the people who do the nursing and clean the corridors. Yeah, it's, it's just very moving. I'm never going to forget. What's important is that it isn't forgotten by people that haven't been directly affected by it. I think... With anything like this, anything that is even a fraction of the impact that it's had, uh, it's important that we remember that things could have been done differently. It's not a matter of they should have been done differently. It's a matter of we need to learn from the mistakes so that we can save lives going forward. And I think that has been our mantra now for over a year. The wall, I hope, and only I can hope for, is that uh, it remains and that it remains as long as it is and no longer. Uh, I think that needs to be very key. I don't want to see it get any longer than it is. The wall needs to, the wall needs to remain as the memorial and perhaps as a warning about how bad things can get. But I sincerely hope that we're not adding many more hearts to it. I think uh, that's something that everybody should be committed to ensuring and that's not just people in power who make rules and declarations or or lift restrictions when they shouldn't but um average joe in the street who might be a little bit more aware of themselves um as they are going about their daily lives uh, and i hope that uh, the war has the impact to do that in 1919 after the spanish flu pandemic survivors also said the experience was something they would never forget. But unlike today, no one thought to create a memorial to the pandemic, and slowly but surely, society did forget. You might think there's little chance of that today, and yet, with the successful rollout of vaccines, many people want to return to their pre-pandemic routines, and put this ghastly chapter behind them. That is not a sentiment shared by COVID-19 bereaved families. Following Dominic Cummings' comments, during seven hours of evidence to MPs that the government was, quote, woefully unprepared for a pandemic, the group has demanded that Boris Johnson bring forward the public inquiry, currently scheduled for spring 2022. As Jane Taylor Broadbent put it, pointing at the heart she had just drawn for Julie and the others stretching along the embankment, all these people are like me. They are grieving and they don't have answers. Thanks for listening to Going Viral. Do have a look at our back catalogue. Series 1 is all about the 1918 Spanish flu. And you could also check out Series 2, The Covid Files, and Series 3, Facts and the Facts. If you enjoy what you hear, please give us a like or a review. You can find us on Twitter at goingviral underscore pod and on Instagram at goingviral underscore the podcast. I'm Mark Honigsbaum.
and my producer is Melissa Fitzgerald. <laughs>